0: Morning. I hope you're all well this morning. This week I was reading a blog that was talking about how people really don't like to admit when they're wrong. And it chimed with me. If you talk to Jill, I I don't like to admit when I'm wrong. And it said that basically people have a defense mechanism that if they're going to be proved wrong about something, they'll actually start to bend the nature of reality in order to protect themselves from being wrong. And they gave a great example of a married couple driving home from work, and the wife turns to the husband and says, "Have we got milk in the house?" And the husband says, "Yes, we definitely have milk in the fridge and then of course, when they get home, they open the fridge and there's no milk and the husband immediately says, "Well, there was milk there when we left this morning?" and the wife says, "Well, that's strange because we live alone here and nobody else has keys and he says, "Well, I'm telling you there was milk when we left and What's happening is he's having a defensive reaction and I'm sure with a bit of time he'll actually say, I made a mistake, but the initial reaction is to say to bend reality and and to try and justify and not to be wrong. And it's kind of the same with our sin because we're very good as people at picking out sin in other people's lives and seeing sins that other people have, but it's more difficult for us to see our own sin We know that we'll have blind spots and and there's even sins that we commit that we know nothing about. God, thankfully, in his kindness and his graciousness to us, doesn't let us persist in that state. He pursues us, he comes after us and he brings us under his conviction and this is the feeling of discomfort and disquiet about certain areas of our lives and that's God speaking to us and trying to get us to come to our sin and to understand it. And then what he wants us to do is to turn from it and to turn to him. And that's the act of repentance. He doesn't want us to stay under conviction, feeling sorrowful and regretful. He wants us to come to him and confess our sin and, and be set free because he wants us to live in freedom and joy, having no sin, having confessed our sin to him and having, having had it forgiven. So repentance, the Hebrew word for repentance means to stop And to turn, to be going in one direction and stop and turn and go in a completely different direction. And that is really the heart of the gospel. You know, to receive salvation from God, we must repent. We must turn from our own ways and turn to God. And whenever we do, we receive his salvation through the cross. And Jesus said in Mark one fifteen, The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And that was a call to turn from our ways and turn to God's ways and follow him. So the passage today, Psalm 51, is all about repentance. It's about the nature of true repentance. And the title of the psalm gives us a good picture into the background. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, So David was famously the shepherd boy that God anointed to be king, and he he brought David to being the most famous king Israel had. He was a a warrior king. And normally David would be in the thick of the action, off fighting the war with, with the army. But this particular year, he decided to stay in Jerusalem, and he sent the troops off to fight the war. And while he was in Jerusalem, he ended up having an affair with a lady called Bathsheba, and Bathsheba was, a, was the wife of a man called Uriah, who was one of David's best fighting men. He was like a general in David's army. And Bathsheba became pregnant as a result of this affair. And David, rather than trying to confess his sin and make things right, he started a cover-up operation. And he, he went to great lengths to try and cover up his sin. But when it didn't work, he decided to have Uriah killed. And he sent them into the fiercest part of the battle, and he told the men that were with him, when the fighting's at its worst, pull back and let Uriah be cut down. And that's what's happened, and, and Uriah was killed, and as soon as Uriah was off the, off the scene, David took Bathsheba into his house, and she became his wife. And he had many wives at that stage, but Bathsheba became another wife of David's, and the child was born. And so David is really twisting the nature of reality to, to try and sell himself this story that everything's okay and, and he's trying to move on with his life. But at the end of 2 Samuel 11, where this tale is recorded, the words are, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So God wasn't content to let him languish in his sin. And he sends Nathan the prophet to David. And D- Nathan comes to David and he tells him a story about two farmers, a rich farmer and a poor farmer. And he tells a story about how the rich farmer takes advantage of the poor farmer. And he really knows how to press David's buttons. And David erupts with fury at this man about this injustice. And he says, As surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. And Nathan springs the trap on David and he says, You are the man. And in that moment, the Lord just lets David's sin rest on him. And the scales fall off his eyes. And he stops going in the way that he was going and he repents and he turns to Nathan and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And they're possibly the first words of truth David has spoken in quite a few months. And immediately Nathan says to him, God has forgiven your sin. Which I find pretty outrageous because he'd committed murder and adultery and he'd lied and basically done everything he could. But that's the radical nature of God's grace. Anyone who repents from their sin no matter what they've done God will forgive them and he'll forgive them immediately if they are truly repentant so when David receives this forgiveness it's, it's through the cross of Jesus that he's forgiven even though David lived a thousand years before Jesus the cross stretches from eternity to eternity and whenever God forgives someone it's through the cross of Jesus that he does it it covers all sin for all people for all time so Psalm 51 is David's song of repentance to the Lord. He's already, he's already repented and received forgiveness, but David was a, a musician, a poet, and he writes this hymn of repentance to the Lord to express how he's feeling, to process the forgiveness that he's been given, and he's working through it, and he's, he's putting his feelings down on paper and expressing them to God. And it's tempting when we read this to think that David is tearing his hair out when he writes this because it's all about himself being a sinner and his petition to God for forgiveness. But I think there was actually an element of joy because he knows that God has forgiven him and he's secure in his salvation. And what he's doing is just saying, putting his hands up and saying, I am unworthy and God is the one who's righteous. So I'm going to look at it now. There's, there's 19 verses in, in Psalm 51, and you'll be glad I'm not going to go through them all, but I've picked a few out, which I think give us a good picture of a truly repentant heart. And the first one is verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. The very first words out of David's mouth are, have mercy on me. I don't know if you ever played Mercy at school, but it was this game where you locked hands with your opponent, and the two of you, with all your strength, basically tried to break each other's wrists if you could, and if, if you lost, or if you were losing, your hands would get bent back like this, and you might even drop to your knees, and you'd scream Mercy, and you'd be in agony, and at that time, you had no defense left, you had no power to overcome your opponent. You had to rely entirely on the goodness of your opponent to actually let you go. And that is really exactly what's happening to David. David's coming to God empty-handed. He doesn't have excuses. He doesn't have uh, a list of good things that he's done to try and rebalance the scales. He's just coming to God and saying, if you don't forgive me, if you don't treat me with compassion and unfeeling love, I'm, I'm done for. I have no, no other defense to plead but he knows because God is good, not because he is good, because God is good, God will forgive him, and we know the same thing. The next verse ends, verse four. It says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And again, this one struck me as a bit strange because David has ruined so many lives with his sin, but he's saying the sin is just against God, and I was thinking, surely it's against other people. But I think what he's saying is sin by its nature is rebellion against God. It's it's primarily that the effects and the consequences of sin affect other people around us, but it's primarily a rebellion against God. It's enthroning something else in your life and taking God off the throne. And it's important for us to understand that because sometimes we have a tendency to explain away the little things in our lives that we know are against God's will as our little habits or our weaknesses or things that we gloss over but we have to be serious and call it what it is and and be real with God and say this is this is our sin because if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us but we know that when we take this sin and we're real with it with God we are going to get forgiveness so the news is good but we have to be real with God. We want to establish our relationship with him on a solid foundation of truth. Verse 12 then says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David had experienced many years of joy, of close personal fellowship with God. He'd, he'd really had a, a time where he'd He'd lived in holiness and worshiped the God, uh, God in beauty and truth. And um, this sin had now entered and caused separation. And it's important to remember that when that happens, God has not moved away from us. We have moved away from God through shame. And we see it in the Garden of Eden. Whenever Adam and Eve sin, God still comes and looks for them. But they're nowhere to be found because they've fleeed from his presence. They've been driven from his presence by their sin but he's still there. And David was in the middle of a complete disaster coming upon his house. Nathan had already told him some of the things that were going to happen, and it really was not good news. But the thing that he wants more than anything is to have the joy of his salvation restored, to have that closeness with God restored to him because he knows that no matter what trials come in life no matter what ups and downs he has to face that is the thing that will sustain him in his spirit that's what will get him through and it's the same for us because we know life's not easy and we have lots of ups and downs and we lose people close to us and and things happen but if we keep close to God and keep the relationship fresh and healthy by confessing our sins he will Give us a willing spirit and sustain us. Isaiah 43 verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. In verse 17 then, David says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David knows that the sacrifice that God truly wants is a heart that's broken by its own sinfulness. In the Old Testament, God had instituted the sacrificial system to deal with man, humankind's sin. And what would happen is when someone sinned, as long as it wasn't a capital offense, they would pick out one of their animals and bring it to the temple and they would kill it and they would drain its blood, and the blood would be taken and sprinkled on the altar, and the animal would be cut into pieces and burned, parts of it would be burned, and the person who had committed the sin would smell the fragrance of that that being burnt, and it was a fairly gruesome affair, And and part of the significance of that was to show people that there is a cost for sin, that it takes a death to pay for it, a fairly gruesome one at that, On this side of the cross we can look back and through scripture we can see God's fury and wrath against sin being poured out on Jesus on the cross and it's not a pretty picture. And as we become more sensitive to our sin we start to realize that it was our sin that held him there and that's what will break our hearts. That's how God will give us the broken and contrite heart and that's how we can come to him with a sacrifice that will please him. People's hearts who are broken by sin change deeply. They don't want to sin anymore. They really want to change. They want to please God. They want to come to God with a sacrifice that will delight him. But the reality is that Christian life is hard, and we will ultimately probably sin again. And when we do, we should always turn to God because we know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That is the good news. God will never turn us away if we turn to him. He's a God of mercy and love. He will always be there for us. In verse 18, David says, may it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. David is confident enough in his forgiveness to ask for the restoration of his people because he's a leader and he leads Israel. And he realizes that his sin has affected not just him but the people that he leads. And it's important for us to remember that too because as Christians we've been given a role of leadership to lead those who are close to us into a relationship with Jesus, to point them to the, to the Savior, to tell them about him. And God has given each of us a unique story through the sin that we had in our lives and the forgiveness and the grace that we've received by turning to him. And that story is powerful and it can be used to bring others to the cross and to change lives. And David really models that for us in Psalm 51 because he exposes his vulnerability. This psalm was to be used for congregational worship in his time. He wanted his experience, his story to be used to build up other people, to bring them to faith. And it's taught the church so much over the centuries about repentance There's no response in Psalm 51 or in the rest of Scripture to Psalm 51. We don't see a direct response from God to David. We, we can look at the rest of his life and see how things played out. And God was faithful, even though he had some terrible things to face. God was with him. But I think we get a good picture of the character of God and how God meets with a penitent person in, in the parable of the lost son. And basically, there's some parallels because the lost son had taken his inheritance and he would went off and squandered it and while living and abandon, And then whenever a famine came on the land and all his money was done, he'd ended up half starved and living with pigs. He was living in absolute squalor. And that brought him to his moment of repentance and he stopped from his direction in life and he turned and he decided to go back to the father and seek forgiveness and he just wanted the father to make him like a low servant in his house so that he would have somewhere to sleep and have something to eat. So he practiced this whole speech he was gonna say to the father and as he comes back to the farm, his father's looking for him and the two start to come together and as they get closer, the son starts to give this speech to the father, a bit like David and Psalm 51 to God. But the father cuts him off. He doesn't even get to the end of it because the father throws his arms around him and he puts a cloak on his back and he says, bring the rings and put the sandals on his feet and kill the fatted calf because my son was dead and now he's alive. And that is the picture of the God who rejoices in those who turn to him in repentance. So we can turn to him time and time again. He will always, his forgiveness will never run out as long as we repent and turn to him his forgiveness will always be available to us so as we finish up I just want to encourage you this week to to talk to God about your sin. sometimes we have a tendency to avoid it we want to just forget about our sin but I think it's good to think about talking to God about it because he's there to help us with it and if we think we don't have any sin in our lives we can ask God to search us and to show it to us and to bring us under conviction so that we can deal with it and that we can restore and renew and refresh our relationship with God. If you've never dealt with your sin before, if you haven't made a commitment to Jesus, if, if you want that joy and freedom in your life that God offers through forgiveness, I'd love you to come and talk to either of the prayer ministry teams. that will be available at the end of the service this morning. Um, and just to begin a new life, Jesus said that he came to give us fullness of life. And that's available to anyone who repents this morning and starts to follow the way of God. So I just want to pray.